working on the J engine is the most noble calling that anyone could have. I think this, this is this is a real value to the world. I, somebody has to sit down and write the C code for it, and I'm uh, glad to be the one to do it. Welcome to another episode of ArrayCast. I'm your host, Connor. We're going to quickly go around and do brief introductions. We'll get to a short announcement, and then we're going to hop into a special episode today as we have our first guest. So I'll kick it over to Bob, then to Stephen, and then to Adam. I'm Bob Terrio. I'm a J enthusiast. I can't claim to be a professional J programmer, but I have been doing it for 19, almost 20 years. Stephen Taylor, I'm an APL and Q programmer, and uh, these days I'm also the KX librarian. I'm Adam Bolzewski. I work full-time for a dialogue uh, doing APL, which I've been doing all my life and professionally for like seven, eight years. And I'm your host, Connor Hookstra, as mentioned before. As you know, if you've been listening up to this point, uh, I am not a APLer or JR or KR or QR. I write C++ professionally day-to-day, -day and I work at NVIDIA. Uh, but I am a massive APL fan. If you follow me on any of my social medias, uh, my C++ followers are probably a little bit irritated at this point because I don't tweet much C++. I just tweet APL and J stuff. Um, so, yeah, this is going to be an awesome episode. We've got a short announcement, and then we'll hop into our first interview with our guest. So I'll kick this over to Bob. Yeah, one of the uh, drawbacks to having a language that's 50 years old is you start losing the pioneers that developed it. And that's unfortunately, uh, we've lost another one, Ian Sharp, who was uh, uh, the head of IP Sharp and Associates, um, passed away. And uh, there's been some really good remembrances put up, uh, one by Roger, one by Bob Bernicke. We'll put both of those in our show notes, um, the links to them anyway. Um, but I'm just going to read a, a, an excerpt uh, that Lib Gibson, who worked with uh, Ian uh, talked about the fact that uh, IPSA was quite a remarkable company and headed by a remarkable man. Uh, this is Liv Gibson in 2014. Uh, and then there's Ian, the heart of the company, a 21st century company way back in the last century, relatively flat and widely dispersed. IP Sharp was held together by electronics and camaraderie and Ian. The company was blind on race, creed, color, nationality, sexual orientation, and eccentricity, and gender. I left IPSA with a suspicion that discrimination against women was a myth. Yeah, right. And Lim Gibson wrote that. And Bob Bernicke also posted an interview that Whitney Smith had done um, in 1984 with Ian, so we can hear Ian's own words about the culture of the company. It's an old cliche um, about a company feeling like a family, but it, I do get that feeling around here. Uh, people are very social and and relaxed. Um, do, do you have anything to say about that? I mean, uh, has this been deliberate, or how has this come about? Do you think? I don't think that there's anything deliberate about it. I, I think people just adopt a certain style, and it becomes like company style and, and you can't really change it. Where it comes from, who knows? Okay, I was just talking with uh, Margaret Riley upstairs and um, 
and she, we were talking about, I, I asked her, why are there so many women of, uh, in high positions in this company? Um, because in most companies this size, there aren't a lot of women who have uh, positions of such responsibility. Well, if I know Margaret right, she probably turned that around and said, why are there so many men in high positions in this company? Well, I'll pass that on to her. No, but what, can, can you explain that? No, it's sort of like asking why are there so many people in high places in this company. Uh, I, we don't openly differentiate between uh, males and females. Um, we're looking for people with particular talents and particular ideas, and, and uh, some of them are female, I suppose, that by the law of averages, 50% of them should be. And so, in his own words, that was the kind of culture that he established, and one of us on this panel had the privilege of working with Ian, so I'll kick it over to you, Stephen. I did, indeed. I did not know Ian well, but the, in my mid-twenties, I had the unbelievable good fortune to join his company. And as Lib said, it had a flat hierarchy. You could talk to anyone. I was 25 years old. I didn't know that the world didn't work like this. The company had its own international um, telecommunications network at that time. We were thinly distributed around the world. We ran the place on email. Uh, and with, I don't know, a, a, um, a company culture of civility and honor and tolerance that I've never seen matched anywhere else. When I madly left for to join a startup after nine years, um, Ian just said to me, well, if it doesn't work out, come back. I've never been in a culture like that. And I've been saying for years that it ruined me for life in the real world. Uh, I heard a story from Ken Iverson about Ian, who spent a lot more time with him than I did. Uh, they'd been on a flight. I think it, it might even have been when um, Ken, uh, Ken told me this in Australia. Uh, and as they were landing, Ken looked over at Ian's filling out the landing card and noticed that under occupation, he just put down programmer. And somehow that chimed with me and I've been writing programmer as my occupation for the last 30 years. Yeah, it's, it's I don't know, refreshing to hear that uh, company, you know, back in the 70s, uh, was able to have a culture like that, whereas now we're fast forward 50 years and it seems like we've there's been, I don't want to say regression because that sounds like a sort of unicorn company. I don't think most companies were like that back in the 70s, but um, hopefully uh, all corporations and startups and small companies can aspire to to have that kind of culture in the future because um sounds, sounds like an amazing place to work. Um, I obviously did not have the privilege of working there because I wasn't born uh, when that... Uh, <laughs> I think right when, right when I was being born, uh, uh, Ipsa was being sold to Reuters. So um, I don't think they hire babies. Uh, but I, if I had the opportunity, it sounds like it would have been an absolutely amazing place to work. Um, oh, Connor, it's an, it's an amazing thing that, to tell young people today that my email handle, SJT, is older than the internet. And they... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is, uh, there's probably not a, not a lot of people that can say that in the world. Um, probably only only a handful. Um, but yeah, with that, we will hop into, um, an episode that I'm, I'm super excited about. Uh, so our guest today is Henry Rich. 
Um, I'm going to let Henry introduce himself, but before I do, uh, what I will say is... I primarily know Henry's name uh, due to my sort of digging around in the uh, JSource GitHub repository, which is hosted on the J Software account, um, because J is open source. It's under GPL license, but you can go look at all the code. And if you look at the contributors, uh, the number one contributor since 2017, when I believe this was posted on GitHub, is Henry H. Rich, who has uh, over half a million additions in those last four years. Uh, and has more than, I think, twice as many commits as the next person. Uh, Eric Iverson, um, I believe the founder of uh, J Software, uh, only has like 221 commits. So you've got like 7x uh, <laughs> more commits than, than Eric. Uh, but that, I think, is just the four years of GitHub. But the point being is that clearly Henry's done a ton of work on, on uh, the J source code. And um, yeah, I'll, so I'll kick it to you, Henry. You feel free to start wherever you want in your sort of career timeline, because uh, I know you've 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 worn more than one hat um, than just programmer in your in your history. That is true. I'll start at the beginning. I've I've lived my life in Raleigh, North Carolina, um, and my programming started. Um, I think it was 1966 when I would have been 13. The town, because Raleigh was not much more than a town then. I got a time-sharing account for the public school system. Remarkably forward-thinking. Uh, and we had a, a terminal uh, in the junior high school. Uh, and I discovered BASIC. And that's I realized that was writing programs was all I ever wanted to do. I've done it ever since. Uh, which meant that when I graduated from college, IBM fortunately had moved into Raleigh. Uh, so I went to work for IBM. Programming in those days was assembler language, and uh, some languages uh, based on PL1, but much lower level, not too different from C. Uh, but one summer, uh, the, the the modeling department for the uh, project I was on, uh, I was detailed to work for them for a summer, and they were using APL. Uh, and that was just eye-opening. I realized this is the way to write code. Forget about all that other stuff. Uh, I wasn't able to, to write APL for the next 20 years. Uh, I ended up, I, I joined a startup too. I uh, ended up designing graphics hardware, eventually being an architect for flight simulation. Um, but uh, maybe 20 years later, in the mid-90s, I got to a position where I could decide what language we would use, and I remembered APL and said, oh, "Let's let's go back and see if we can get some APL." Well, you know, we were a startup; we didn't have much money, so uh, looking around, I discovered an outfit called Iverson Software, which had something that seemed like APL. So I called Iverson Software. Gene Iverson answered the phone. Um, she put me on to Ken Iverson, who explained to me that uh, yeah, APL is pretty good, but his new language, J, is the, the modern version. I'd really like that better. Um, so I, I got onto J, uh, and it was immediately productive. I, I was able to write the entire uh, a model, the entire texturing system for the flight simulator and a couple of pages of J. We, we all know these stories about the productivity of the language. Um, well, then my first child was born and I discovered that 
uh, engineering at the 80 hour a week rate that I was accustomed to was just incompatible with being a good father. So um, I, just, I quit programming for a while. I, the last program I wrote was a, a program to trade stocks. This was in J, uh, about 50,000 lines of J, so a big program. Uh, and that paid the bills during the period when I was not uh, working uh, productively for a living. I homeschooled my daughter. She decided she wanted to uh, go back to high school. So I, I followed her into high school, uh, first as a substitute teacher, and then they needed a computer science teacher. Uh, and I ended up teaching computer science and math and Latin. Um, I taught for the computer classes, I taught Jay. And this is mostly to, to raw beginning programmers, people who've never seen a programming language before. Uh, and they picked it up just like ducks taken to water. It was uh, the only problems I had was with the few students who had done a little bit of programming in some other language, maybe C or basic. They got used to loops, but if, if, they, if you didn't get used to loops, you can write J naturally. And I, I believe if it could be introduced to students at an early enough stage, we would have a lot more array programmers than we do now. So I'm very happy with what you're doing here, trying to popularize the idea of programming in this different style. It's a totally different way to think. Anyway, after uh, teaching for several years, about 10 years actually in high school, um, I got the bug to write code again. I had been writing code all along, but I was saying maybe I should try to go back to be a professional programmer, but you know, I've been away for a long time and you feel like your skills uh, erode pretty quickly in this business. Um, but uh, two important things happened to me then. First, I decided to write uh, the, the program, uh, which is now called Dissect. Um, and this, I, I recommend anybody who's uh, thinking about array programming because uh, what Dissect does is give a visual two-dimensional display of a single line of code, a single sentence in J. If you think about it, you could never do that in a non-array language. I, you know, I give you a, a C statement, say, give me a visual representation of a C statement. Well, that's silly because it just you know, replaces A with A plus B. Uh, but in an array language, a single statement can do enough work that it's worthwhile to have a display of it. Uh, and that's what Dissect does. Uh, it, was, um, it was the hardest program I ever wrote. It took three years. Uh, but the important thing to me was when I finished with it, I decided, yeah, I can, I can still write code again. Um, and along the way, the, the other momentous thing that happened is that as I was using Dissect to try to integrate it into my classroom teaching, I discovered a bug in the J engine that made one of the demos fail and I wanted to fix it. Well, it turned out there was nobody around to fix it because Roger had left J software. Uh, so I said, well, all right, I'll fix it then. Uh, and that was my first uh, exposure to the J interpreter. Uh, I looked at it and it's very interesting. I said, you know, I, may, I can probably do something with this. Uh, and so that was about four or five years ago. And in, in the interim, 
I have quit teaching school and I've gotten some consulting jobs to pay the light bill. But mostly what I've concentrated on is in all my spare time, working on the J engine to try to make it better. And that brings me up to today. Where I'm, that's what I'm still doing. All right. So now I have like a thousand questions, but I also want <laughs> – we've also got three uh, three other panelists. So I'll, maybe I'll ask one question, and then if uh, whoever's got questions next, um, uh, we can sort of cycle around. But so my, my first question of the many that I have, uh, you mentioned that you, know, you started with uh, BASIC um, back when – in 1966, I believe was the year yes. when you sort of caught the programming bug, and then – a I, I, should, I should say basic and algol okay. which was, which was the cla- high class language at the time and, and then fast forward a, a few years you stumbled onto apl and and sort of just the light bulb went off and so i think with sort of rotating panelists when we've had them on and and we've had a whole episode on this we we asked you know what is it about the array languages that you know you, you love or that you know made that light bulb go off so like can you can you speak to having seen other languages and then you saw apl and what was it about it that uh, spoke to you and that, that you thought, like, this is the way we should be programming. Well, it's, it's just the incredible terseness and e- expressiveness of the language. You write a line of code and you just know this would have taken a page if I had to write it in C. Uh, you, you can, it's, it's so much faster to get a job done. Uh, I think you still have to write a lot of commentary to explain what you've done, but you can express yourself so so quickly uh, that there's just nothing to compare it with. There's, I, 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 did, I took a job writing C++. Uh, my first job after I left school was working on a database, RocksDB, uh, in C++. And I could just, it was like a mental downshifting of gears from, from high to second. I just really just everything just is more code and takes longer. I can get used to it. You know, it works, but it's just a slower way to develop. Okay, so I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna break my rule. I said I'd I'd let someone else ask a question, but <laughs> I'm, I've got to follow up. Uh, <laughs> so, having taught Jay to high schoolers, and you said that basically if if they hadn't seen anything else, you never had a problem. Did you never have students like? So you're talking. You sort of mentioned productivity and expressivity. It's just unmatched by other languages. Did you ever have students that in high school were sort of raising their eyebrows because of one of the main things that you know developers these days whether it's coming from python or java or insert, insert popular language and they have heard of apl they say oh it just seems sort of unreadable so and and amongst the array programmers as, as and you just spoke to that that it's it's like the purity of expressivity that you get from these languages which is the exact opposite from not being able to read something did did your students ever say anything like that or it's just no, they never even thought to think it they never even thought about it I, I, I stressed uh, commentary uh, in my in my classes, um, and when I see this, I've seen some students over the years, and I always ask them, "Are you still writing comments?" Because uh, that seems to be a lost art from the, what I've been seeing in the uh, consulting I've been doing. Uh, you. The, the hard part about programming, as we all know, is getting your thoughts in order. So you, you figure out what you want to do, and then you write a program to do it. Uh, and no matter what language you use, if you don't remember what your thoughts are, you're not going to be able to understand the program very well. So you should write down uh, what it is that 
prompted you to, to do what you did in the form of commentary. And then, uh, then you will understand the program. If, if somebody writes, it's certainly easy to write J code that nobody can understand, but it's also possible to write J code that people will understand. All right, Bob, I see that you've, I'll, I'll pause now and uh, you go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, there's two things. Um, um, Henry mentions dissect and it's, it is an amazing tool and there's two parts to it. One is it's an amazing tool visually and it provides it, it, to describe it, it's sort of node-based. Each step along the way breaks into a node with connectors between, so you can actually trace the execution of the line that you've got. And breaking it into that second dimension allows you to see how things develop. And then on top of it, he's developed a visual language just by the icons and the, the cross-hatching and things like that, that you can immediately tell other things about what's going on in the program. And that really is essential to taking a J program and breaking it into something you go, okay, I understand that part is a fill. That's those zeros there aren't calculated. They're a fill because we have to make a rectangular array. So those kind of things are, you know, in dissect visually, but Henry also mentions the comments. And if you, um, if you download um, any of the add-ons in J, you can actually look at the source code of them. They, they're, they're all, all of it is there. I can, open it up in in uh, in J and I can look at those files and and dissect is a is a large program but most of it is really clear uh, comments about how things have been done and it's it's probably more commenting than a lot of people would normally certainly more than I would put into my J programming but it's it in terms of maintenance and those kind of things I, I, I'm just in awe of how clean that program is and how you can follow it just on the actual code itself. And I, I'll, uh, I guess there's a question in here somewhere. <laughs> um, Henry, is that, how did you develop that approach? Is it literate programming or is it different than that? Uh, well, it goes back to my, the first uh, difficult algorithm that I developed, which would have been sometime in the early seventies. And, as I was trying to, as I wrote it, I said, you know, this is hard enough. I ought to try to prove mathematically that this program works right. So I interspersed with the lines of code beyond enough to prove that the program worked right, except the program didn't work right, uh, which I discovered in writing the commentary. Uh, and that was, that was really an experience of a lifetime because I said, you know, th this is what you ought to do. You have to think, you might as well write out what you're thinking. And then if possible, you'll write enough to know that your program works. And what I've found in Dissect, more than once, I've gone in to make a change and I find this, okay, here's where I'm gonna make the change. And then I'll read a comment that says, by the way, don't try to make this change because if you do, it's gonna break something else somewhere. That's, uh, yes, thank goodness, that, that's good commentary. <laughs> All right, should we kick it to, because if, if Stephen and Adam, if you don't have questions, I'm just going to keep on, uh, <laughs> or Stephen, go ahead. <laughs> oh, one of the most attractive things about Jay is the tacit programming, which completely took my breath away when I first saw it. And for those of you listening who have not come across it, um, an example of tacit programming is, say, the function for calculate the statistical mean, the average. To get the statistical mean of a list of numbers, you've got to sum them, you divide it by the count. The sum 
and j as in APL is plus slash. Um, divide is, is it the percentage symbol in j? Mm -hmm. yeah, yep. yeah. And the count is the pound or hash. Octothorpe, yeah. Octothorpe, thank you, yes. <laughs> that, that funny thing. So you, you, you'd expect to see those in the definition of your function. And if you were writing in dialogue API with direct definition, there'd be a couple of curly lambda-like little braces around it and some, um, uh, some tokens for the arguments, for the, for the argument. Uh, um, in J, the function for average is simply plus slash ha uh, divide plus slash divide hash with per with parens around it, and it's like all the rest of that stuff you don't need. Uh, I've um, I've admired tacit programming. Um, I think uh, when I looked at it, I thought, oh, I want to be able to do that. And then when I tried it in J, I found yes, yeah, sometimes I can do that. Um, I. <laughs> I wonder, Henry, what your experience has been with tacit programming and in particular with teaching it to kids and whether, as some people have said, it's actually a step too far in making code terse. I think they're right about the step too far, but uh, that said, it's it's beautiful and it's very efficient. Uh, it's, ma it's magnificent. It can just created a language, a, a grammar that has no no punctuation it's just parentheses and the order of symbols and that's a language i i, I don't know if you're aware there used to be a much richer uh, version of the language that was uh, taken away 15 years ago uh, it was possible to do tacit programming with conjunctions, modified, uh, much more complicated stuff. The problem was uh, there were only, I think maybe five people in the world that really understood it. Uh, it never let me down. I could do anything I wanted to do, but uh, it's just, uh, if I'd say it's just too much to try to teach beginners. When I teach Jay, I don't teach tacit programming. Um, and well, you know, that's not totally true because there, it, it's, there's not a sharp distinction between explicit programming and tacit programming. If, if, I, if I want to write the function to take an average, like you say, plus slash percent uh, hash and put it in parentheses, that produces a verb. I could give that a name and I could call that a tacit program. But equally, I could just take that sequence of symbols and stick it in a sentence without a name. And now I have those three verbs tied together in that way in the middle of a sentence, or maybe as part of a larger thing that doesn't have, a, have any names to it. Now, is that tacit programming or not? Well, it's some of each. You think of it as a little bit of tacit programming embedded in an explicit sentence. Uh, so, and I, that level is very valuable. Uh, because you, you you don't have to keep referring to the same names. You know, if you if you've got three or four functions that you're going to apply to two names, you can use the tacit language to describe that uh, without actually having to create a tacit function. Uh, so when I was teaching it, I taught explicit programming to begin with. The the biggest down 
drawback to tacit programming is it's very hard to maintain, in my opinion. Now, there are people who do it all the time, but I, I, I went tacit happy in that first program I wrote when I was learning uh, J, my first J program, I did it all tacit. And not only was it very hard, but it was just so hard to fix. And I realized then, you know, let's not go too far here. Uh, the, so I use tacit forms for things that are very well described, almost mathematical functions or functions that have a very well-defined spec that's not gonna change. You can make them tacit, that's okay. But otherwise just use explicit forms and, and but do know what a hook and a fork is. Those people who don't know Jay, those are different ways of combining two or three operators into a single function uh, quickly because it, that's very expressive. Um, but but don't don't feel like you're somehow letting yourself down by not using tacit programming. It's the the, the rest of the language is rich enough that um, you're doing fine if you just write explicit code. But wasn't it very awkward and. Uh Jay only gained a neat, in my opinion at least, uh, direct form or explicit form uh, very recently. For all these years, it has always looked very clunky to me to write explicit code in Jay. It really pushed people into writing Tashit. Oh, uh, well, you do have a point. Uh, the, the, the form of writing an explicit, you, you just have to get over that. Uh, it, you used to have to say name equal colon verb define followed by the body of the verb followed by a parenthesis. What's different now is instead of verb define, you can use a double brace. And instead of the trailing parenthesis, you can use a double brace. That doesn't strike me as being so uh, repellent. Uh, it's, it certainly shouldn't be, an, shouldn't change your programming style. Thing. But although I, I do like the direct definition form, it's much uh, cleaner and it allows you to write functions in one line. We're... One thing, too, I, I should mention just for uh, our non array listeners that aren't familiar with uh, Tacit, it's known as something else uh, in other programming language communities. Um, it's the same thing as point free programming, where uh, very confusingly, point does not refer to points, but points refers to arguments. So really, you can translate point-free to argument-free. Uh, so in the case where we were descri describing average, you can do uh, the tacit version in APL now, but at one point you couldn't. Uh, so if you had a defund, you'd be mentioning alpha and omega, or I guess actually just alpha because it's a, it's a unary operation at the end of the day. Um, whereas in the tacit form, you don't have to, uh, or sorry, omega, yeah, omega is the, for the unary. Um, but in the tacit version, you don't have to mention anything. So in J, the equivalent of alpha and omega are X and Y, um, and you don't need to mention those. So uh, I think, I think Henry, when you were talking about sort of tacit can refer to defining tacit functions, but also you can use a tacit quote-unquote expression in the midst of a line that, yeah, it's, it's sort of a mix of both. Because at the end of the day, if you're mentioning arguments at the macro level, uh, it's sort of hybrid. But in the midst of it, if there's a tacit expression, um, that, yeah, it can be very expressive. Adam, I think you were going to mention something. Yeah, I think we can make things a bit more broad. Yes, at some point, Iverson, um, inspired by traditional mathematical notation for function composition, came up with a system of uh, handling, especially two argument functions, dyadic, uh, 
infix functions uh, in, a, in a composed way like this, but there is more to the tacit uh, programming in API-like languages than just that. As soon as you have an adverb or those call, call it operator uh, or conjunction that takes a function or even an array and derives a new function from that um, or a new verb from that, then you're doing tacit programming. So in a sense, it has always been with the APL family and in all these languages, common for all these languages is a plus slash does sum. That's for K, for J, for APL. Um, and what's happening there is that you are composing pieces together. Right? It's not two separate things. The plus and the, and the slash, they combine into a single entity. And so even when, when Henry was mentioning that uh, you should be aware of these things, even when you do the most explicit of all programming in these languages, uh, you're still going to actually be using tested programming without thinking about it. Yeah, yes, uh, that's a very good point. Uh, and if, if there are uh, people out there who are thinking about array programming, uh, you just wouldn't believe how effective these modifiers are. Uh, you, you can take plus, you take slash, you put them together, you've got a new function. Uh, and there are, what, about a dozen of those things uh, that can be used in combination with each other. And it's just amazing how much of what you want to do can be done just like that with the composition of a few uh, operators and verbs. Yeah, I think I, just in our last episode, or maybe it was two episodes, I remarked about that, that um, C++ has a, a very powerful, rich suite of algorithms in their algorithm libraries. Um, but the the power that you get in sort of what can also be called, you know, we call them operators. Um, some people uh, have said that really we should have just called them functions because they're just like in functional programming, they're higher order functions. They're functions that can take other functions as arguments. Um, and the, the power that you get, like they're just the way that Ken and Roger designed the language. Um, it's in my opinion, yeah, it's, it's unmatched by anything I've experienced in other programming languages. Um, like the key operator in APL. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if that comes from Jay, uh, that does sort of your group by functionality. Um, that, yeah, when I, when I discovered that I was like, oh, wow, this is like group by, but completely unconstrained like you can do absolutely anything that you that you could possibly want with it um bob do you have a question that you want to stay on this topic before we before i go on a, <laughs> a new tangent actually i think i was probably going to go on a new tangent um and that tangent is that you've recently been consulting with the monument group and one of the things that they seem to have done is uh, parallelize the arrays and i believe uh the work you were doing with monument was along the lines of starting to take uh, take the arguments you're working with in the array, breaking it down and and running to various different threads. Uh, and to me, I'm really interested in, in how you did that, how you approached that. And I believe you used J as the, as the language for that. Uh, yes. Um, yeah, I was a consultant with uh, Monument for a while and was just in a small shareholder in the company. Um, we monument chose J for all the right reasons, the productivity of code development. It, the, the product is an artificial intelligence suite uh, directed at businesses. Uh, we want to do that sort of thing. The code's written in J and uh, they monument was interested in um, making better use of a modern multi-core computer 
uh, given that um, the the J language is a, a one processor system, um, and we spent some time on that. We, one thing we tried that didn't work very well was uh, parallelizing primitives. The, the parallel the parallel system there, uh, which is called JX, and I believe uh, Monument is offering it for public evaluation now. If you want to find it, um, the um, we used OpenMP uh, as the basic model of parallelism, um, and we tried parallelizing the individual primitives. So you want to add an array of 100,000 items, you can split it up and have each core add up 10,000 of them. Um, that turns out to be, uh, it worked, but it didn't, it didn't speed things up much because it's not a very cache-friendly uh, implementation. It generally, I, I create an array and the array is going to be on some processor. Um, if I try to split the operation into 10 threads, nine of those threads are going to have to go fetch the data from the processor that has it. It's going to be in that cache or, or back to an L3 cache, which is slow. And the, the threads that don't have the data in a cache close to the CPU are going to be slow. And they have to synchronize at the end of the operation. So it turned out that uh, a parallelism at a primitive level uh, was not effective. Um, so then we tried parallelism at a higher level, where say so take a whole verb, take something that runs that, that does a significant significant amount of computation, and maybe runs a couple of hundred milliseconds and let that run in a separate thread. Uh, so we implemented that, and that, that's, that's what uh, MAI is announcing, and it works pretty well. Again, we use OpenMP. The model is a futures model where you, uh, you have, there's a modifier that says, take this verb, here's a verb, take it and run it in a thread, and when the result comes back, uh, the, the result of the thread is, a future, which is defined as a box whose contents show up when you look at them. If, if you look at them before they're ready, you block. When the, when the thread finishes, it fills in the future. Uh, and so you, the, the advantage of this is that um, the thread itself Will can run cache friendly. It will be implemented as individual J primitives, and it'll be local to its core. And it doesn't have to synchronize immediately. It can synchronize later when the data is needed by whatever processor spawns the threads. So it, it's a much more efficient way to um, to execute. And also, it's effective for code development purposes in that uh, you can say, let me try this as a separate thread and see how it works. And you, you don't have to go to the trouble of creating a whole new J instance and figuring out how to share data back and forth. You can, you can give it a try and see how it works. Sounds to me like you've got uh, Heisenberg cats working for you. <laughs> well, that's not, not exactly because it's, it's not the observation of the data that causes it to be computed. It will be computed even if you don't look at it. And, That's right. But I'm a bit 
confused about a thing. You mentioned very briefly uh, the result is a box, a future. But is that really a box? Because yes. I saw some examples of it where, for example, using the, the rank conjunction or the APL term to say the rank operator. So we have this, this verb function that's being applied to subarrays of a larger array. So here the idea is you have a larger array, too much data to compute in uh, sequentially. So we're splitting it up into chunks. Say we have a three-dimensional structure and I want all the subarrays that are two-dimensional. So all the, all the layers to be computed separately. So what I would do is I, I use this new conjunction you've made um, with, my, with my function. Um, and then that derived uh, verb, I then apply rank two. So I apply it on the, the subarrays that have rank two, the ones that are two-dimensional, that's the, the layers. And then we get back something. But the nature of application on rank is that you do not know how many dimensions the final result will have. Say, if I apply something to the layers of a three-dimensional array, and the result of each, each layer, which is a two-dimensional thing, is a single number. For example, let's say I sum all the numbers that are there, flatten it or sum it. Then the outer shape has one dimension, and the inner shape has no dimensions. So we get a one-dimensional list at the end. How do you deal with, with not knowing what the structure will be? Well, that's why there is, that's why a future is a box. Uh, you, you would have to unbox, you have to have an explicit unboxing operation to join the, the, the individual layer results together. So does that mean that uh, my function applied with, uh, with this parallel conjunction and my function applied without the parallel conjunction will give two different results? One gives a boxed result, one gives a non-boxed result? Correct, that's right. Wow, okay. I mean, it, it, gives a, the, it gives the same result that the function would have given to begin with, it just puts it in a box. The, the reason for that is that you wanna be able to pass this box around, but I'd, I, would, I would like to be able to take that box and pass it into another function and uh, without having to figure out what the result is. The, the box may go for, it, it may live for a long time before somebody actually looks at it. Uh, when they look at it, that that's when you block if the value is not there. So, uh, I thought it was necessary to to make it a. It, it's not a special data type, but it is a box, so that its contents are shielded from uh, the rest of the world, because inspecting the contents of the box is an important operation. Yeah, and I guess just to clarify for people, a box is just like an atom. Um, it's a single scalar, well, value. The contents can be any shape inside the box, but the external view of it is it's just a box. It can, you don't, you're not going to get into conflicts with it. It's just going to be treated like any scalar. Yeah, it, in C terms, it's like a pointer to void. Uh, it, it, it refers to some data. Uh, you know, the box itself doesn't take much space, but um, there, it's a pointer to, to data somewhere. It's just really interesting for me. It's something I've been looking into because uh, at Dialog, we've had this experimental feature, which looks very much like this parallel thing you're describing. And we've bumped into exactly this problem that we can't allow the contents of a future to spill out 
into its surroundings, it has to be enclosed. Otherwise, we will need to finish computation now. Yeah, exactly. So, so yeah, just make it. Just say it's born in a box, and it, you know, looking at it is an explicit operation that the creator has to perform. The system doesn't worry about that. And then I'd like to ask Stephen Taylor. And if something like this has been considered for K, it doesn't have this problem because every type of nesting is like boxes or enclosures in the EPLLJ. I wish I was smart enough to answer that one, Adam. I'm not close enough to the implementation. I could say that we mostly work with relatively simple um, data structures. We don't even insist in Q that um, arrays be rectangular. They're just lists of lists of lists. In some, in some ways, um, Q said to be a, a blend of APL and LISP. That would seem to make things like parallelization actually simpler. Well, it may be. We've had, um, we've had parallelization on the primitives since version four. So, and uh, and we, get, um, we get useful gains in speed from that. Speaking of useful gains in speed, Henry, is so this is this sort of you, you said you talked about sort of two attempts. The first one didn't end up being successful because of cache coherency, and the second one you sort of uh, went up a level. Was that one a lot more successful in terms of the the speed up? Yes, that's effective. The uh, the the cores don't interfere with each other, and they. I mean, there's there's always problems when you try to split up job, but uh, you know if you get spend you put four cores on a problem and only take a third the time i i should back up that the the one case where uh primitive level parallelism was extremely effective was for matrix multiplication uh you know that that is the classic parallelizable algorithm uh it's a lot of computation and it can be split into disjoint parts so that worked very well but even that isn't a primitive uh, operation. That's also a conjunction. Well, it's implemented. The that, that, that's the thing. There's a, there's a lot of stuff in the interpreter that is not a primitive in the language, but it's implemented as a primitive. There's a primitive for for a real matrix multiplication and complex multiplication, and and there there are hundreds of of combinations of primitives that have special uh, code behind them. Spe speaking of the interpreter, this was sort of the the tangent that uh, I was going to ask about. Um, so I I believe dissect the tool that you worked on uh, for three years. Uh, that was sounded like it was written in J, if yes. I'm not mistaken. Correct. Um, but all of the uh, work that you've done, or I shouldn't say all of, but I assume the a lot of, if not the majority of the work that you've done contributing to uh, the J source code over, um, you said sort of your first bug fix was four or five years ago. Uh, has been in the language that the interpreter is written, which is in C, or um, what I like to call sort of a, a macro DSL version of C. Um, so I, I'm not sure if you're familiar, but at the beginning of the year, which is 2020, depending on when you're listening to this, if it's in the future, uh, I started trying to port um, the J source code to C++20, not for any particular purses, uh, reason other than to um, learn about the implementation and sort of, I think Ken's a genius and studying the implementation is probably a good way to get inside his brain. Um, and very quickly, I was like, I was like, oh, yeah, sure. How hard could this be? Uh, and um, 
I think I, the first live stream that I did, because I was live streaming on YouTube, ended up being like, I can't remember, eight or 10 hours or something uh, just to get the thing working. And very quickly, I realized that this was not C code per se, like there was 10,000 macros um, uh, defined in, in the code. So uh, I guess my question is, is what, what is your experience when you had that first, oh, I'll go fix a bug? Um, did you think nothing of the code base and it was just, oh, I'll just go, or were you overwhelmed as well? And you've clearly, uh, uh, managed to, you know, ramp up and uh, been able to make major changes. So like, yeah, could you just speak to that? And so what was your experience? If you have advice for people that are trying to look into the source code, you know, what are tips and tricks to get to your level? Um, well, you'll have an easier time than I did because there was not any commentary when I started. Uh, however, the huge advantage is the guy who wrote it, the, the art, Roger Huey, uh, is a master and everything is done in the right way so you know the i i've i've tried to maintain people written by maintain code written by non-masters and then in that case a lot of the work is why did they do it this way uh, and there's none of that in the j engine it's done this way because this is the right way to do it and if you think hard enough, you'll agree that this is the right way. That still doesn't make it easy to to, to actually figure out the details. So the, what I did to begin with was every module that I wanted to work on, I first went in and filled in commentary for it to where I could understand it. And, and then I worked on it. That was a, that was a fair amount of work, uh, but feasible because again, there's not, there was not a false step anywhere. So the, the uh, still just just being confronted with that mass of uh, code with no commentary was daunting uh, i think now that anybody going in now will find an easier task because i've commented everything that i've gotten into uh, and that amounts to about a third of the interpreter now i think but yeah the, the macros I, I think you can get used to them that, that was not the hardest part of it to me it was just trying to figure out what each module was doing and how would you, what was your experience with because uh, you said you know going from j or an apl and stepping down to c plus plus like that is essentially what you're doing when you're working on the interpreter uh it was it painful having to write c code knowing that uh <laughs> you know at the at the other end of this is what you want to be writing in or uh it just not really because i mean the working on the j engine is the most noble calling that anyone could have i think this, this is this is a real value to the world. I, somebody has to sit down and write the C code for it, and I'm uh, glad to be the one to do it. There's there was a lot of work to be done, uh, mostly just in modernizing the code. The, the The code was Roger started it in the mid '90s, right? I think about the time I was calling Ken Iverson. Uh, you know, Roger was was had just put out a couple of a few releases. Of Jay, this code goes back a long way. Uh, nobody could have figured out then what a an out of order CPU was going to look like. Uh, so it's it's coded to a computing model that's basically a Motorola sixty eight thousand. You know, fetch instruction, fetch operand, execute, uh, and to to get performance on. A modern out-of-order CPU, you, you have to um, 
think about the, the main thing you have to think about is cash friendliness uh, also minimizing mispredicted branches I, and then finally there's the issue of wide instructions you know if when you get down to the primitives you you need to implement them as possible as much as possible with uh, the instructions that do multiple operations at a time so um, a, a, a lot of the work has just been a modernization effort along those lines one, one of the things I've noticed, Henry, is that you've moved some of the primitives out of C and back into J, so some of the calculus primitives. And you've also kind of workshopped a few, like I think you're doing that with Fold, where before you put it into C, you're using actually J to create, I suppose, the structure of the mod, the design of it. Yes, exactly. I wasn't sure. You know, these primitives, I don't know how Ken did it. Maybe... Maybe he had some trial and error, but this, designing this language was really hard. I mean, you just have to say, I, I've designed plenty of languages, as I'm sure everybody has. And, uh, and it's just hard to get it right. You know, you can make a language that does does the job you had in mind, but to, get a, to write a language that does the job you had in mind and is extensible, that's, that requires a master, which Ken was. And I, I don't think I'm at that level. So I wanted to write Fold in a way that we could experiment with it. And indeed, we've it, we've changed it a couple times uh, while it's been there. With the calculus, that was a little different. I think I, I think Roger decided Roger himself decided that uh, it should not have been done in C to begin with. Uh, I, I believe that at the time it was written, there was some thought of doing symbolic mathematics like Mathematica. Uh, and it just turned out the C is not the right language to be doing that. And this, it, it, it should be done in a higher language. J is a fine language for it. So I just put that back where Roger decided it should be. Do you want to talk about when I hear fold, I think of, oh, that's another name for reduce, depending on the programming language. Uh, do you want to talk about what fold is? Or, or maybe that is it, but I'm, I'm getting the sense it's something different. Well, if the purpose in J is to pick up those things that are not well enough served by simple reduce uh, and they are one is early termination right so i've got an iteration i want to stop early uh, and another is uh, an operation that needs to pass a large amount of state and uh, keep some data from each iteration so uh, in, in J without fold, uh, there is a, you have reduce and scan, and then there's a reverse scan, which is slightly more efficient, but let's not worry about that. Uh, reduce takes, an, takes a verb and applies it between all the items to produce a single result. That's great. Scan takes a verb and executes on each between each item, but it also remembers the result of each execution. So if you're talking about addition, it's a running sum rather than just the sum of the array. And that's, that's good if that's what you want. But sometimes you want to have a running operation, but you need some state passed from one execution of the verb to the next. So I might have a thousand element vector Maybe it's a table or something that I want to update as I 
do the execution. The, the scan operator, the, the, the scan, a verb with, with scan, would require that that intermediate state be part of the result. So if I have a, a vector of a thousand items and I'm going to do it a thousand times, I would have a million items of intermediate state that is not really needed in the final result. It would just be there because of the way scan is defined. See what I'm saying? Fold allows, fold sp splits the, the iteration into a part that passes state to the next iteration that does not become the result and a part that produces a little bit of result so that you can operate, you can have state vectors that are part of the iteration, but not part of the result with a huge saving and uh, memory requirement. So yeah, my, my guess is that, that that state piece for the fold isn't being copied um, every single time. It's being updated, uh, but not copied. Whereas if you tried, to do that, you tried to do that with a reduce, each iteration would require... Uh, copying that state, which is going to end up being super expensive. Well, the the problem it's not a reduce; it's a scan that's the issue because the the only thing that gets fed into the next uh, execution of the verb in a scan is what would be part of what would be the result for the previous result, and, and that may be meant much more than you need to remember overall. Yeah, you know, that that that's what we're saving. Uh, so we've implemented full, and to my knowledge, it's never been used. Uh, um, I, 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 I almost had an application for it, but then I found another way to do it. Um, but it, it, it does, I, I feel like I've had times when I would want to use it. I just <laughs> don't have any now. And so, and just to be clear, the fold, does it uh, do the intermediate results like scan or it does only have a final result like reduce. It, it has an option. There are six variants. Uh, okay. You can you, <laughs> you can scan forward or backward. You can you can have multiple results or one result. I see. And I, I can definitely tell you that I've had this use case where, especially for a scan, that's the thing is you, you want to carry state extra state that's required for the next element but you don't actually need that element in your result. But like in a functional language, that algorithm doesn't really exist. So what you end up doing is doing some sort of scan where you've got sort of a tuple of elements. And then, you know, the first element of that tuple is the extra state you need. The second element of your tuple is your actual result. And then once you've done that, you've got your array of tuples. And then you just do some sort of map where you say, hey, ignore the first part of the tuple. That was only the state that we needed to do the scan. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that that has definitely come up before. Yeah, you've got it. That that is exactly what Fold is written for. Yeah, Adam, I know you've been you've been trying to ask a question. Yeah. Well, no, that's ask a question really. It's just I think to clarify something, to clarify something for the 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 poor listeners that have no clue what it is we are talking about here. Uh, I think we should just say scan and uh, well reduce and scan have been with APL since almost forever. Uh, reduce has been since forever, and uh, we just need to clarify that. These are six new primitives uh, added to J relatively recently. I think right. that wasn't clear at all. Um, oh, yes. And, and <laughs> trying yeah. to, to, to they're, they're clearly trying to address a shortcoming in, in generalization based on the original APL reduce and scan for those odd cases. Um, and, and when you need them, you really do need them. But most of the time, 
you don't. You can just do with a normal reduction and scan. Yes, if, if anybody ever comes up with a case where they need it and they complain about the speed, I'll implement it in C, but until then, we're going to keep the, the implementation is actually in J, so we can... It's, it's interesting that this, act, this actually is uh, a thing you've done, because in C++ 20, I believe, um, they modified the ISO standard on the language such that the accumul accumulator in your uh, reduction algorithm um, uses uh, move semantics. So previously, if your state that you are uh, carrying in your reduction, like that you're accumulating on, if it's something extremely expensive, like a, you're trying to get the unique elements of something and you decide to do that with a hash set or something like that, um, it's going to be very expensive because every as that hash set grows, you're going to be copying it every time. But now that we have move semantics, it move semantics without explaining it just basically says, "Hey, don't don't copy this. Just um, just move it," uh, which avoids copies and is way faster. Um, so this same issue that's being tackled uh, with fold and J is something that is also quasi being tackled in in the most modern C plus plus version at the at this current time, um, which is very very fascinating to me. Um, I'd like to also ask a thing about about this fold. It's something I want to ask you as maybe the foremost modern day implementer and user of J and the symbols, the glyphs. And because, you know, really the APL languages say they use like one symbol, but then there's some for each thing. And then there's some exceptions in, in, in all of them, I think, but they can use multiple and and Jay has had this thing there you can add a, a dot or a colon after a symbol to change it and that also works for for alphanumerics and then they've slowly started adding multiple of these so the, we mentioned there are six folds and they are the capital letter f followed by every uh, one length one and length two combination of dot and colon right uh, yeah, J was first first came out one year before Unicode 1.0. And as you mentioned also, Roger, and I don't know if he abandoned ship. I mean, he still does things in J occasionally, but he also mentioned to me that uh, for his teaching his old child, his own child, APL rather than J, which I was a bit surprised about. Uh, and he now works for Dialogue. Uh, what do you say about the character set? And is it still the right choice with Unicode? Oh, I don't know. I, uh, that, that's going to be a matter of taste. I think you, if you ask anybody who's not a J user, they'll say, I, I look at all that J and I can't understand it. I, you ask me, I'm not an APL user. I look at APL, I say, I, I don't know what all those symbols are. But that that's that's silly you whatever it is you know you, you can learn to read the cyrillic alphabet if you want to right you just you learn whatever alphabet you need for, for the language you're going to use uh but we did face this issue uh recently we have uh when we introduced direct definition we had the the issue of what to use for delimiters for the functions uh there is a unicode brace uh, that is different from the standard ASCII brace and we could have used that uh, but we decided not to because I uh, well I say mostly because Eric was adamant 
that we not deviate from ASCII. I, I think a, attempts to go beyond ASCII have led to a lot of problems over the years. And I'm, I don't think they're solved yet, but we, de we decided that rather than try, rather than go to a Unicode delimiter, we used a double left brace and a double right brace, even though that was an incompatible uh, change to the word formation rules of the language, that that was better than trying to use a, a non-ASCII character. I'd like to pick up on what you were saying about the alphabets um, a moment ago, that um, we learned the alphabets that we need. Um, I see myself as having been drawn to the Ibersonian languages in the first places because I wanted to, I wanted to write and think at a more abstract level and, uh, and not waste my scarce mental resources chunnering along with uh, all of what you were referring to earlier as punctu basically punctuation. Um, and as part of that, it, as not just picking the language, but in the language, I've always tried to use the most abstract forms that I can out of a belief that this is, uh, it's kind of a, a self-improvement project. I want to improve my ability to express myself, to write things in a more abstract way. I want to see patterns more deeply. So, so you get here that I bought Ken's story that the, the better notation would help you think better. And if I could risk attempting to channel Ken here, he would, his standard response to criticisms that a, an APL expression was hard to read was to challenge the distinction, to insist on distinction between what was hard and what was just unfamiliar. And the, the, the argument leads into Whitehead's um, much referred to thing about we we need to think less. We need a notation which will raise our thinking up so that we you know, stop sweating the small stuff. Uh, it's an argument. It's a discussion I've had with Whitney several times, and I was very interested in what you were saying earlier about maybe five people in the J world who could understand the the full rich set of the um, of the earlier forms for tacit programming. Now, if you, if you stood by Ken's argument, you'd say, well, we should leave that stuff in there and wait for the rest of the world to catch up and reach that level of abstraction. But um, yeah, as, as I said, both Whitney and I have doubted that, that there's some kind of glass ceiling beyond which the abstraction just becomes too hard and it gets, it gets in your way. Uh, I wondered if the if you have any thoughts on that. Uh, well, I was very sad when the language was uh, simplified, but it, it did reduce, uh, it got rid of a lot of code, it simplified the parse table, makes execution a little faster. Uh, I, I think if when the language has been around for that long and, there's, and it just, tacit programming is just harder to get a handle on than explicit because with explicit you've got the alpha and omega in APL or X and Y and you know where the operands are. Whereas with tacit programming you'd had to memorize, uh, I think it was about 25 different forms of tacit function. That was simply more than most people were gonna do. 
I think they would be happy to memorize 25 things, except it just didn't occur very often. You know, what, what we're talking about there is a, a, a language for creating operators, not a language for creating verbs, a, a language for combining verbs. So a, a hook or a fork, it, as you said, you've got verb F, G, and H, and you've got alpha and omega that they operate on. And it's pretty easy. I'm going to do F, I'm going to do G, I'm going to do F and then H and then G. That's something that you do a lot in a programming environment. And you say, this is good because I don't have to repeat X and Y. But the corresponding case at the higher level is when I have a, f a function that I want to execute more than once. Like, so I want to say, here's a verb, and I want to execute this ver I want some structure that allows me to do this verb on some operand, and then later on, do that same verb on something different. That's much more rare. Uh, like, I, I only used it, uh, you know, a dozen times, perhaps. You know, now, I don't think it, uh, it's just not a good use of the average programmer's time to learn that abstraction for something that's not going to be used all that much. Um, it was beautiful. The thing about it, it was so beautiful. It, 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 always, it always did anything I needed it to do. Um, and, I, and I wrote a chapter in my book on it. Uh, but sadly, <laughs> it, was, it was just too hard to, for, for most people to, it was too hard for it to make sense for most people to learn it. I get it. If I'm following you, there's, it's a kind of trade-off between the cognitive load on one part and the cognitive load on another. Yeah, that's a better way of saying what I spent two minutes saying. That's right. <laughs> and and a plug for your book, because um, I, well, it's, in J, it's pretty much my Bible. Um, when I need to try and figure out what something's going on, of course, there's Nuvok and there's the traditional dictionary. And I think you had a lot to do with Nuvok as well. Um, but those areas I go sort of to maybe find a reference, but if I really want to understand something, I go to J for C programmers because it's an array language sort of interpreted into a very simple procedural way. So you can kind of figure it out. It works with really simple principles, but then you take it to the next level. And it actually, I think it was in the chapter that you wrote about operators and maybe the parsing engine that you, you said that there's very few people who actually go into trying to write operators tacitly. And that's probably why it wasn't used very much. You take the general population, they just don't move into it. But if you start to write operators, <laughs> that's when you really miss the absence of it. I came to Jay just after those were taken out. So I never experienced them. But now when I go into write an operator, it's like, oh, I know that was there once. I can see where it would fit. I just can't use it anymore. Uh, you can, but in fairness, you can only use the tacit language. Well, it's like for verbs. You, you can. A lot of verbs are just harder to write in tacit form. For for a complicated operator, you really need to write that explicitly anyway. So the the tacit language it works on a, a few things, and and we really shouldn't spend any more time bemoaning it because it's not coming back. <laughs> Oh, hold on, there's something called uh, something else called JX, and which is some, some extension to J. And again, I don't know a whole lot of J, but from a little bit of what I'm trying to gather here is that there's some 
tested there used to be some tested form to define adverbs and so on is that and they have certainly um oh that was uh, pepe pepe cantana's project yes i uh, i haven't heard anything about that for many years i think that's not not up to several releases behind at best okay. but was that was that what it was basically something similar to trains to to verb phrases that allowed you to define adverbs well, and... uh, Pepe Quintana uh, is a programmer who writes everything in tacit form. Uh, it, it's amazing to me what what he can do in, in tacit programming. Uh, and and so when the language diverged, when, when that was taken out, I, I believe he kept it in his version of J. Uh, and so he used it, uh, he was doing um, financial operations using J. Uh, and for a while he, he kept up with it. But I think um, as J, when I came in, came in and we started pushing the language forward again, I think uh, it hasn't kept up with that. I think from what I remember with the uh, the message boards, um, he used to refer to some of the tricks that he used to get around it as wicked. And I think it was he and Dan Braun were the ones that were coming up with these wicked things. And I think in a recent version, you finally they finally came in and they realized they couldn't do the wicked stuff and keep everything running at the same time in the new versions. Well, yeah, they, they found a, a back door that allowed you to write a verb that produced a, write a verb that produced a verb result. That's not supposed to be possible. Verbs are supposed to produce noun results. But if you use this back door, then you can make some other stuff work. But it's, it's not, it's contrary to the language. And I never actually went in with the intention of plugging the hole, but it, it, advances in the implementation have uh, made that backdoor no longer effective, I think. All right. So <clears throat> I think we've burned by the hour mark uh, a while ago, uh, which I'm, I'm not uh, upset about at all. Um, I think we're going to have to have you back on, Henry, because I still, I think, have like 994 questions left uh, oh, great. Out, out of the 1,000. Um, it's been awesome having you on. I, I guess maybe I'll finish with, and this can maybe be like a, a teaser, because I think we could probably have a whole episode just talking about um, you having taught Jay and your experience there, because um, it's it's a topic that comes up time and time again with not respect to just Jay, but all the array languages. Um I know we were talking about this before the, the recording started that you've had one student that's gone on to be rather prolific, uh, Mar Marshall Lockbaum. So he ended up, I believe, working at Dialogue for a period of time and then has written two of his own programming languages, I and the more well-known, at least in the array community, Bacon, which is, it's spelled B-Q-N, um, but I believe it's pronounced Bacon. Uh, you're not supposed to pronounce it like that unless you're making a pun. Oh, is it is it the the technical pronunciation is BQN? Is that what we're supposed to say? I guess so. Yeah. Oh, all right. Well, maybe we'll have Marshall on, and he can he can set us straight. Um, but have have you had um, not to focus on Marshall in particular, but ha have you had a, a tons of students that have you know absolutely fallen in love with Jay and then gone? Or I, I, maybe as a teacher, it's hard to track you know which students um do or do not you know post being in your computer science course. 
um, you know, use it in the future? Or uh, do you have any, you know, empirical data or, or anecdotal stories about that? Or uh, a um, couple of anecdotes. Well, Marshall is uh, one of a kind. He, it's almost. I'm reminded of a quote that it, 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 he, he was not uh, he was not born of woman, but God issued him directly to mathematics. Uh, he, I've uh, never met anybody uh, uh, with that level of mathematical ability. Uh, yes, he picked up Jay right away. I, I had a a couple of students who. It picked the to use Jay in the introductory course, which is not a programming course, just mostly spreadsheets, but a little bit of Jay, and were so taken by it that they became professional programmers. Um, I had one student who uh, learned Jay, and he was obviously prodigious. So I, I tried to find something for him to do, and I got the city of Raleigh had a, or no, the state of North Carolina had a program that they were using to approve changes in, uh, approve water projects. So you wanna build a dam that's going to have so much outflow into a river or something. Uh, and they had a program, unfortunately, all they had was the object code and an old listing in Pascal. Uh, so they, they couldn't, they couldn't make any changes to it. Uh, the fellow who wrote it, of course, was long departed. Um, and the, the student took that Pascal program and translated it into J in a semester. And uh, the state started using it for their water projects. It produced exactly the same results as the, uh, the previous program, but it was maintainable. So uh, yeah, we've had, Students, students pick it up quite nicely. That's awesome to hear. Yeah, hopefully, over time, uh, more more high schools uh, as they're developing. I know right now in the UK, uh, Simon Peyton Jones is in the midst of standardizing like uh, CS curriculum for for all of all of the UK, and I imagine that's going to be happening in every country at some point in time. And um, hopefully, there's going to be a space for for different paradigms, and it won't just be Python everywhere. Um, there'll be some, some J and some APL. Um, cause yeah, it, it sounds like it's a, it's a great stepping stone into this world or I'm sure we would all agree, but we're probably biased. Um. Yes, we are. I, I called my, my J class. I, I called it programming for scientists and engineers. Uh, the motivation being that when you're writing code for somebody else for a living, you're going to be slinging Java or Python or whatever. But when you're writing code for yourself, that's when you really want the language that has the highest productivity. Uh, that, that's when you want to be writing in an array language. And I think it, it would be great if the students, even if they know they're not going to be writing array language as much, they at least had some idea of, of how programming looks when you do it that way. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a powerful tool to have in your tool belt, even if you only um, need to use it every once in a while. All right. With that, I think I think we've got a couple um, a couple announcements at the end. Adam, I'll, I'll kick it to you for those. And if there's other folks with announcements too, we can we can make those now. Sure. Um, a couple of things. There is there are only two. What is there only one week left uh, of the Dalek APL competition? So 
if you want to have a go at that. If you haven't started yet, it's probably late to participate in phase two, but you could still win a prize in phase one. Um, there is the, as we mentioned, the um, I mentioned before the EPL campfire event uh, where we um, had a chance to ask questions of the big people within EPL's history and the next uh, such event is on uh, the 1st of August at uh, six o'clock UCC. You can find links to that in the show notes. And Stephen? Yeah, Henry was remembering back in uh, in Raleigh, Carolina, um, getting a time-sharing service account. And what that would have been like back in the day, because I had a time-sharing account back in the 70s, was you get to use a keyboard and there's software working at the other end and all the data is loaded up. Well, progress never stands still. You can get this now in the world of KDB. If you go to kx.com slash academy, you can get a KDB session all loaded up with the uh, New York City taxi data. And um, uh, there's nothing to download, nothing to install. Just go play and explore. kx.com slash academy. That's awesome. All right. That reminds me uh, that uh, we just released the source code for tryapl.org. Um, and so if you're interested in seeing how we have We've implemented this uh, whitelisting and, and execution of uh, incoming requests. You can see exactly how how the API, which is public, um, is handled on the back end. And you can go and have a look at that. So, so much, much more of use, low barriers to entry by trying out the real languages. So we've got a contest, a campfire, uh, KDB Plus in the cloud, and uh, open sourced TriPL. So tons of stuff to check out. Um, all the links of that, I think, will be in the show notes. And uh, once again, thank you so much for coming on, Henry. This has been a blast um, hearing your story and, and your experience with Jay. And hopefully, the listeners, um, if they were bored by all of our, uh, you know, gushing about the languages up till now, they've uh, they've heard your story and uh, maybe been like, oh, okay, so it's not just not just these folks. Um, uh, Henry clearly. Um, fell in love with it. So maybe, maybe some others will be inspired to go check out Jay as well. Uh, yeah. And, and hopefully we'll be able to get you back on in the future. Cause like I said, I've, I've still got a ton more questions and I'm, I'm sure we could do this again uh, several times and not run out of things to talk about. <laughs> Thank you. Awesome. All right. Thanks for, thanks for coming on. And I guess we'll say as we always do happy array programming. <laughs>